Today we're continuing our series on the marks of a healthy church. This is week two of uh, five weeks total that we'll be going through this series. And today we're going to be talking about gospel doctrine. Talking about gospel doctrine. Um, what is gospel doctrine? Man, that's a difficult question to answer because uh, that covers a whole lot, doesn't it? Basically, uh, to borrow from what Mark Dever described as gospel doctrine, gospel doctrine is an understanding of the truth about God and the gospel. So what we need to do then in order to truly understand gospel doctrine is start in Genesis 1.1 and preach through the entire Bible. Who's interested in that? We can do like they do in African churches and preach for three and four hours at a time. Now who's interested in that? Oh, we've got a few takers. All right. So because we have a few, we will go ahead and do that as a whole. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, truthfully, we have to cover all of the scripture to truly understand all that gospel doctrine is. But we're trying to understand what makes a healthy church, right? And how gospel doctrine plays a part in that. So what we want to do is we want to try and find uh, what the Bible says about how a church is uh, created or shaped by the gospel. And I believe Ephesians 2 does that the best of almost any text in the New Testament. Essentially, it teaches us that God has graciously saved us and set us apart as a new people. So today, what we want to look at in Ephesians chapter number two is how the gospel shapes a church. Uh, now, for our text, we're going to read beginning in verse 19 down through verse 22. We'll read that section. But for our entire sermon today, we'll be looking at the entire chapter of Ephesians chapter number two. Uh, so let's go ahead and jump in. Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 19. The Bible says, hear the word of the Lord. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the build, building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you that we can be in your house today. I pray that you would give me the words to say, guide me and direct me as I preach this morning. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open uh, our eyes to the truth of your word today. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Now, the letter to the Ephesians was penned by the Apostle Paul in a Roman prison sometime around 61 AD. And as was his Pauline manner, Paul begins his uh, letter with a beautiful doctrinal discourse. Uh, and I've mentioned this several times, but if you'll look in the Pauline epistles, you'll see that he opens up with heavy doctrine before going into heavy practical application. And Ephesians is no difference. He begins by talking about the salvation of the Ephesian believers and what that means for them. And in chapter number two, for the first 18 verses, Paul takes the Ephesian readers down memory lane, helping them remember who they were and how that has changed their lives today because of Jesus. In the last four verses that we just read, they detail what the church is and how it's been formed because of what God in Christ has done for them. So really, Ephesians 2 serves as a chapter that shows us how God, through the good news of Jesus Christ or through the gospel, shapes a church, how God does that. It demonstrates the pathway, if you will, of how a church both comes into being and persists. So what we're going to do is we're going to give a 30,000 foot overview of Ephesians 2. We're going to try and lift three definitive realities that shape a church from this chapter, which is also a means for me to encourage you to come back on Wednesday night when we'll dive deeper into this text in our Wednesday night 
uh, Bible study time that we can learn even more about the riches of Ephesians 2. So three definitive realities of how God shapes the church through the gospel, the realities of gospel doctrine. And it first begins, number one, it begins by grace. It begins by grace. Look at verse number one. It says, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, his entire exposition on the shaping of a church begins before the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Okay? He opens with a clear reminder of who the Ephesians were before they knew Jesus. And his primary point being listed there in verse 1, that they were dead in trespasses and sins. And then verse 2 and 3 takes that and details the way these Ephesians lived before they knew Jesus. They walked or behaved according to the course of this world and according to the prince of the power of the air. They were living in such a way that what they did and how they behaved found its source, found its root in the sinful ways of the world and the devil and his demons. It was terrible. It was, their lives were like the lives of all others who were dead in their trespasses and sins, guided by the whims of the world and the devil, just debauchery and wickedness on every hand. And then he notes in verse number three that they behaved according to the sinfulness of their own flesh, just like everyone else. So the three big ones that we always talk about, the world, the flesh, and the devil, this was what guided the lives of these Ephesian believers, is what Paul is saying. Uh, there in uh, verse number three, where it opens, it says, among whom... It refers back to the world and the children of disobedience in verse number two. And what Paul, Paul is saying is that they had their conversation or they conducted themselves among those people. They were right in the mix of it with everyone else who was on the highway to hell and doing all sorts of wickedness and sinfulness. And in so doing, their lives were marked by fulfilling the lust of the flesh and the mind. So what Paul is reminding them is that before they knew Jesus, nothing was off the table for them. Nothing. There was no limit to their wickedness. They were fully sinful and they freely did sinful and ungodly things because that was the very course of their life. This is what marked their life. In, in fact, according to the end of verse number three, it's the very story of their nature. It's, he says, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, by nature. Or that, you could say that, or by origin. They were children of wrath, just like the rest of the world. This is their story. They were under the sentence of God's wrath because of their wickedness, their sin, their intentional pursuit of ungodliness. They were dead in their trespasses and sins and destined for the wrath of God. And this is the case of all mankind apart from Jesus Christ, dead in their trespasses and sin and destined for the wrath of a holy God. But this is not the end of the story, not for the Ephesians, at least. Paul is simply reminding them of who they were Past tense. Now he's going to remind them of how they were rescued. Look at verse number four. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. God in his mercy and love. In fact, rather, I should say God in his great love and rich mercy quickened or made them alive with Christ. 
They were dead in their sins and God made them alive together with Jesus. In other words, as God raised Christ from the dead is what he's saying here. Those who were dead in their sins are raised up with Jesus by the love and mercy of God. And how can this even be possible? Look at the end of verse five. By grace, ye are saved. It's all by grace. He, nothing you can do. It is by the grace of God. He continues in verse six and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. They were raised with Christ and made to sit in heavenly places with Christ positionally. OK, and this is important positionally. They were saved by grace and seated with Christ in heavenly places. Their union to Christ was so real and so secure that Paul could tell them that they were seated with Christ in the heavens with that kind of confidence. And then look what he does here in verse number seven. He explains one of the purposes of this salvation. He says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Think about that for a moment. God graciously saved them and he wasn't done showing his grace. He planned for the ages to come to show his grace to them. It's almost as if he's saying that God is so rich in grace, he's so overflowing in kindness that he can graciously save them and show them through all of eternity the depth of the riches of his grace without any fear of it running out or coming up short. That's amazing. And he reiterates the importance of this grace in verse eight. Look at what it says. It says, for by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Not of works, all of grace, top to bottom, through faith in Christ. This is how they receive the gracious salvation that was offered to them in Christ. No works, all grace. Look at verse 10. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Now there has been a transformation. Do you see this here? In verses two and three, the works were wicked and they could not save themselves. But now in verse 10, because of the grace of God, they have now been set apart to different works, good works, works that are uh, from God in Jesus Christ, works that are not for salvation, but uh, um, from salvation, if I can say it this way. Not saved by good works, but to good works. In fact, it says they were God's workmanship or God's creation. In fact, the English word that we say today when we talk about a poem is the, the Greek word workmanship is where we get that word from. It means the, cre the beautiful creation is what he's saying here. We are God's beautiful creation in Christ Jesus. And he has created us unto good works. He seems to be saying that the grace that saved them is the grace that will sanctify them and will mobilize and motivate them to live for God. And when God builds a church, that's where he begins by transforming people by his grace. Now, all of this is written in a corporate sense. If you go back and look in this text, a ton of the uh, pronouns used are uh, um, in a like plural form. It's like speaking of a bunch of people. The application, though, is highly personal because this is a call to reflect on times past. And that call to reflect is one that we should each think about with joy, brothers and sisters, with joy, because you in time past lived according to your flesh, the world and the devil. 
You lived according to your own sinful desires. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were by nature the children of wrath. And if you are here today and that is who you are, not who you were, I pray and I hope that by God's grace, you will understand and come to know Christ as your savior. Because thank God for his grace today. Thank God for the salvation we have received through Christ. Thank God for the riches of God's mercy and the greatness of his love toward us. Thank God that when we were dead in sins, he raised us up together with Christ. He did not wait for us to figure it out. He came to us. Thank God that we have been seated with Christ in heavenly places. Thank God that through all of eternity, God is going to show us the depths of the riches of his kindness to us through Jesus Christ. We couldn't earn it and thank God for it. If we could, we'd mess it up. We couldn't merit the grace that has been given to us. It was freely given to us by God. He has changed us by his grace. He has made us to walk in the good works that he has prepared for us beforehand. This transformation has happened in us. It is happening in us. And it is all thanks to the grace of God. And this is where it all starts. When God shapes the church through the power of the gospel, it begins by grace. It begins with the transformation of heart and life that can only happen by the grace and kindness of God. But it continues, and Paul explains that when God shapes the church, it is defined by unity. Look in verse number 11. Wherefore, remember, he's calling them back again in their minds, that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh, made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so now Paul is going to remind them of the divisions and the disunity that defined their lives before the grace of the gospel. They were Gentiles in the flesh. In the most literal sense, the Ephesians were not part of the nation of Israel. So they were uh, considered to be Gentiles, or as verse 11 states, they were considered the uncircumcision. This is a division that you can see throughout the pages of Scripture and throughout history, the division that the Jews relied upon heavily. And anyone outside of Israel was not part of the covenant of promise that God made to Israel. And the Jews let that reality become a, a point of pride for them. That was something they were proud of. And they made much of the divisions and promises that were theirs that no one else had access to, essentially. And their divisions ran deep. And look at all the division we just saw in verses 11 and 12. There's a distinction between uncircumcision and circumcision we see there in verse number 11. We see in verse number 12 that they, these Ephesians were without Christ. This is a reference to the promise of a Messiah. They didn't have that promise. They didn't have that um, uh, a promise of a, a Messiah to come for them. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning they were not part of the theocracy that was Israel. They were strangers of the covenants of promise. This was emphasizing their lack of participation and reception of the covenants that God made with Israel. It, he says that they were having no hope, that they didn't have anything to look forward to. The Jews looked forward to a Messiah. The Gentiles had nothing. They had no promise. They had no, no buy-in in that looking for a Messiah. It says uh, they are without God in the world at the end of verse 12, summarizing the horrible state that they were in. If it couldn't get any worse than it already was, well, there it is. They were without God in the world. 
They were divided from Israel, both ethnically and in a way spiritually, knowing that the promises that were made to Israel, they were excluded from. But look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. Because of Jesus, those who were far off from the promises of God there are brought nigh because of the blood of Christ. Where there was once great distance and division, Christ has united and brought these people close through his blood. Look at verse 14. For he is our peace, who hath both made who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. There's a beginning here in verse 14 of lots of unity. Lots of uh, unity here. In verse 14, he says he made both one. In verse 15, he says to make in himself of twain one new man. Verse 16, to reconcile both to God. Verse 18, we both have access. These These phrases indicate that there was division. But now, because of Jesus, that's gone. He has reconciled man to God by the shedding of his own blood. And the results of this reconciliation ring throughout our human lives and reconcile humans to one another. Where there was once hostility between Jew and Gentile, verse 14 tells us that Christ has made peace. And not only that, he has made one new people of the two. There's no longer distinction between Jew and Gentile. The distinction is in Christ or not in Christ. Christ has broken down the middle of wall of partition that was between us. Any division that would have kept the Jew and the Gentile apart from each other, Jesus destroyed it. He he knocked it down through his life and death. He abolished the enmity, as we see there in verse number 15. Both between humans and God and between Jew and Gentile, the enmity that is found in the law. Remember that the law shows us our sinfulness. I think after our study in Romans thus far, we should know that very well, that the law demonstrates to us our sinfulness and shows us that we are enemies of God. But through Jesus, he has reconciled us to God. He has brought us back to God. He has united us back to God and removed that uh, enemy relationship and brought peace. Praise God. By the work of Christ on the cross, the divisions that were so apparent, they were so obvious, they've been destroyed. We've been reconciled to God and peace has come. In fact, look in verse 17, it says, and came and preached peace to you, which were far off and to them that were nigh. That's interesting. The word preached here is the word meaning to proclaim good news. He preached the good news of the gospel of peace to them. To who though? Those who were afar off? the Gentiles, and to those that were nigh. Do you know what he's saying? They both needed the same thing, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be brought near to God. And now through Christ, both Jew and Gentile, according to verse 18, have direct access to God by the Spirit through the Son. You don't have to go to Jerusalem to know the one true and living God. You don't. You can know by grace through faith because of the work accomplished on the cross, God yourself. And this reconciliation between God and man, it ripples down through all human relationships and it creates a reconciliation between man and man. And now because of Christ, there is one new person. There is one entity. It is not that you are now distinguished by these things. We are one in Christ. And when God builds a church, he transforms people by his grace and he unites them together through Christ. So what does that mean for us today? It means that the church is and should be different. 
It means that there are going to be people in our midst who do not look like us, who do not think like us, who do not practice like us or act like us. It means that the church should contain ethnic diversity, various social statuses and different political persuasions. Why? Because the church is no longer defined by those things, but by something greater, something more important. The church is defined by the reconciling work of the blood of Christ, the finished work of Christ on the cross that brings people who are so totally different from one another together. That's why the church is so miraculous, because in human terms, the world should look at the church and say, that doesn't make any sense. Those people should not get along with each other. How can they be unified in that way? Because the church is a visible testimony to the world of the power of the gospel to unite people who are so different under the same purpose. That means, practically speaking, there is no place in the church for racism. Because in Christ, God has created one people of all nations, tongues, and tribes. And let's make sure we understand that when we say in the church, there's no place for that. We understand that that does not mean in the building. That means the people. If you have racism in your heart, according to the Bible, you are wrong. There's no room for that in the church. There's no place in the church for classism because there are no second rate citizens in the kingdom of God. And a person's wealth or status does not make them any more or less valuable to Jesus. It does not matter how deep or shallow your pockets are today. You are valuable to God. It means there's no place for political superiority complexes because the church's most important allegiance is to a greater undying kingdom that will last for all eternity. And I would encourage you to remember that in November of this year. Because at the end of the day, God is not Republican or independent or Democrat. He is God. And friend, I'm going to tell you right now, if someone comes into our midst who's not as conservative as we may be, that's fine. Because we are not simply Americans. We are first Christians. And in Christ, that weighs so much more than anything else. It means that when a brother or sister who does not look like us does not have the same social status as us or is not as politically conservative as us enters our midst, they are treated with the same care, compassion as we would want for ourselves. The church is a place of unity, not uniformity. And the beauty of the gospel is that it reconciles people to God and it unites them together with each other because of the gospel. Because if we are united together under anything else that is temporal, it will perish. It will die. But if we are united together under the common cause of the gospel, this church, Fellowship Baptist Church, may one day no longer exist, but that common cause of the gospel will continue on. A church that is shaped by the gospel begins because of the transformation by grace and they will be defined by unity. And then finally, we see that it will be built up on Christ. This brings us to the text that we just read. Verse number 19 says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Now notice the contrast in language here in verse number 19 with verses 11 and 12. In verse 11 and 12, the Ephesians were in time past Gentiles, aliens, and strangers. 
But now, because of the cross and because of the work of Christ, they are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. To be a fellow citizen is to be of the same state or country. And Paul specifically says that they are fellow citizens with the saints. They're now citizens of a greater country, of a greater kingdom, a kingdom of saints living for King Jesus. And not only that, he says they are of the household of God. This is the idea of of being made together as a family. So not only has their citizenship changed, but now they're part of a better family. This is the beauty of the church. Those who have no family find family in the church. In times past, according to verse three, they were children of wrath. But now because of Jesus, they're part of the household of God. They're children of God who are co-heirs with their big brother, Jesus Christ. And this new kingdom and new family is one that will stand forever because its foundation is sure. Look at verse number 20. And are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. This new family is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ as its cornerstone. Now, in ancient times when they would build a building, and maybe those of you in construction can correct me on this, maybe people still do this today, but they would lay one stone at the corner, and from that cornerstone, everything else would be built. The most important stone they laid was that first one. And it was the one off of which the rest of the building was built. It's the beginning of construction. And Paul is saying that Christ is the beginning of this new kingdom, of this new family. And by him, everything else is built off. And this brings up a good point in thinking about what a church should be. If Christ is not the primary emphasis of a church, if he is not central and the chief cornerstone, you do not have a church. You have a social gathering, but you don't have a church. Christ must be the chief cornerstone. It's crucial because Jesus first is more than just the right idea to have. It's the very cornerstone upon which we build this church. Verse 20 also refers to the foundation consisting of the apostles and prophets. I think this is a reference back to the the whole of Scripture. The prophets being a, a call back to those of the Old Testament and the apostles, the writers of the New Testament. So Christ is to be the chief cornerstone. And if you will, the Scriptures are to be the foundation of the church. It's why we believe the Bible is our ultimate and final authority. But to what end? Read verse 21. It says this, In whom all the building, fitly framed together, groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. The entire building is framed together as a whole and grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So as the church is built on Christ in the scriptures, she grows together as the dwelling place of God, the holy temple in the Lord, the holy dwelling place of God. Now, this seems to be speaking of the broader church, the big C church, including all of our brothers and sisters, both locally and globally. This is why we pray for other churches at fellowship, because it's not just us. There's there's a there's a bigger picture at play. And then verse number 22 appears to pivot to a more local emphasis as he says, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. He says that they're builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. The habitation of God is speaking to them being a, uh, again, to a dwelling place of God, the people whom God inhabits on earth, and they're builded together. This carries the idea of uh, ongoing, undergoing construction along with others to ultimately lead to a unified whole. 
So the Ephesian church was under construction, so to speak, being built up into the habitation of God, along with other churches, that ultimately one day there may be one united bride of Christ. And this all happens through the Spirit. This only happens by the power of God, is what he's saying here, through the Spirit. It only happens by the power of God. A church only truly grows and is built up together by God's work. There is no other outside means that a church can grow into what God has intended for the church apart from God. And a church that is built on Christ is a church that will weather the storms of change, unrest and wickedness that will pop up in the culture around us. How? Because the church's foundation is sure and settled. It is Jesus Christ. He is our only foundations. And we can know with confidence that we will be unshaken even when the world changes rapidly. Christ being the foundations means that what he started, he will finish. He even said... Nothing, not even the gates of hell will stop the church from being built into the holy temple and the habitation of God that he has planned for it to be. So a church is shaped by being built firmly on Christ, knowing that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the church will grow into the dwelling place of God. Now, across the globe, the United States has 173, give or take, embassies. And then these embassies exist as the official headquarters of diplomats and representatives serving in a foreign country. The primary purpose being to assist citizens of the U.S. who travel to or live in other countries. They exist to advance U.S. interests in their host countries, to interact with the local government, businesses and citizens, to give a better understanding of the U.S. and its policies. The, that embassy will analyze the political and economic situations in their host countries and in some cases provide guidance to those countries. And I think the church is a little bit like an embassy of heaven on earth. We exist as the official headquarters of the people of God and we behave as ambassadors and representatives of our home country, heaven, where our good great king is. The church's primary purpose is to equip the saints for the work to which God has called us as we live and serve in this foreign land, awaiting our call to go home. The church exists to advance the interests of God's kingdom by interacting with the world around us and helping them better understand the good news of the gospel and by being the hands and feet in Jesus in the world. The church will analyze the cultural situations and will speak the truth of God's word into those situations, helping both the members of the church and the world outside the church to understand how God has intended for things to be. Usually, the U.S. embassies are beautiful buildings meant to represent the homeland. The church is a beautiful, messy building representative of the work that Jesus Christ is doing with and for and through his bride. Friends, we have been saved by grace. We have been united by Jesus and we are being built up on him so that we can be a visible expression of heaven on earth. And as we go from this place, may we be that expression. As when God shapes the church, how does he do it? He does it by his grace, saving people by his grace. He does it through the power of the spirit built up on the foundation of Christ and his word, and he does it by making a people who should be divided, united because of Jesus Christ. That is how God will build a church.